Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we're very glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, bad, crazy martinis for conservatives today. So grab a stool and join the conversation here. Uh, Jim, yesterday was primary day. We mentioned one of those uh, races yesterday where Democrats are kind of biting their nails in a couple of states where not that long ago they would have been coasting to victory. One of them was Colorado, uh, which had primaries uh, yesterday. And we talked about the uh, Democratic Super PAC that spent nearly $4 million trying to influence the Republican primary because they thought uh, that one candidate would be a whole lot easier to beat in the general election. Uh, and I haven't followed the race closely enough to know which candidate I would have preferred. But uh, it turns out that the candidate that the Democrats thought was going to be easier to beat did not win uh, the nomination. So it was Joe O'Day, uh, who is listed here uh, by The Hill as the more moderate candidate, uh, is going to be the nominee. Uh, Ron Hanks, allegedly the more conservative. But in the end, it was about a 10-point margin. And so the Democrats blew $4 million uh, on nothing uh, in Colorado through their super PAC. Uh, one other uh, race of note, uh, Illinois did a lot of redistricting basically to rub out conservative districts. But they also put together a couple of member versus member primaries due to redistricting. And uh, Sean Caston defeated Marie Newman, who was in an ethics cloud from her 2020 campaign in which she um, basically promised a job to someone who was also thinking of running for the Democratic nomination. So that person did not run, and that person also never got a job. So, uh, Jim, not a good night for the Democrats, and, you know, that's a good thing. Greg, I'm really tempted to print up a T-shirt that says, I spent $4 million trying to influence the Republican Senate primary in Colorado, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Because right now... <laughs> Democrats don't even have the T-shirt. Um, now, look, we should point out, with if the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee or in, in Senate races, the DSCC, if they decide to intervene in a Republican primary, it's not, I guess, 100% guarantee that the candidate that they deem to be the weakest and easy to beat Republican is going to be the weakest and easy to beat Republican. Remember, Hillary Clinton was absolutely convinced that Donald Trump would be the easiest Republican to beat in the 2016 election. But by and large, you know, the Democrats do have a pretty good instinct for this sort of thing. Usually there are at least some controversial statements that make people think, OK, this is going to be a candidate who, you know, either shoots his mouth off all the time or uh, has some other glaring weakness that makes them weak. I'm not, you know, every vote's got to be earned. I'm not going to tell you who you have to vote for. But I think when you see the opposition party really intervening in favor of one candidate and that's your candidate, you should probably stop and take stop for a moment and take a good long hard look. Say, okay, why do they think this? What is it about this candidate that they think is so beatable? And unfortunately, we've seen other races this cycle where Republicans have gone ahead and do this. Now, Greg, I think it's worth noting that, as my colleague Charlie Cook observed, that when Democrats take some candidate and they think that they are a uh, extremist, that they want to overturn the 2020 election, that they are conspiracy theorists, that they are, maybe they even participated in, in uh, January 6th and stuff like that. If you take someone and you say, this person is a threat to democracy, and thus we're going to spend a lot of money to help this person in their primary, I don't believe you that you genuinely think this person is a threat to democracy. Because if you really believe that, you wouldn't want this person to come anywhere near 
uh, elected office, and you wouldn't be trying to help this person win a primary just because you think you have a better chance of beating them. Uh, oh, by the way, this is always a bad strategy, but it's particularly a bad strategy when you're the Democrats and you're facing an election cycle like this one. So uh, I don't know if I'd put Colorado. Colorado is one of those, those uh, Senate races that's kind of been lurking in the background this year. And I think this now might be the sort of thing that bumps it up to a higher tier. It's, you know, we saw Cory Gardner win this race. Usually it needs to be a good year for Republicans. We'll see how this shakes out. It's, you know, a little tougher to knock off an incumbent, but... Uh, you know, I, I think this is now one more Senate race that uh, needs to be won. And I saw a couple of Republican consultants kind of chortling saying, you know, that's four million dollars Democrats could have spent in an actual competitive race. They actually could have they could have helped their candidates in places they really need it, as opposed to trying to play around in Republican uh, primaries. So uh, the other note about uh, that, you know, whether this turnout versus Roe versus Wade being overturned. Uh, so far, at least as of the early returns, it didn't look like that was the case. I think if you were going to see it. The Tuesday after a Friday announcement of the decision would be the exact time you'd expect to see it. Something worth keeping an eye on. But I think if you are really impassioned about Roe v. Wade, you probably were the kind of person who was likely to vote in a Democratic primary already. So I don't know. I think this may indicate that the people most galvanized by this already were galvanized. And we really shouldn't expect anything dramatically different. But as usual, you know, keep an eye, keep a close eye on this trend as the primaries continue. I'm just glad to have another Democratic incumbent having a potentially competitive race. I feel like <laughs> some of the things we've already talked about over the last few weeks, like who we nominated in Pennsylvania, who we might nominate in Missouri. Uh, I don't know still what's going to happen in uh, Arizona. And so, you know, it's uh, uh, opportunities are perhaps being squandered in certain places, and I just don't want them to be squandered everywhere. So uh, if we have a chance to pick up a seat in Colorado, that's a good thing because so we might have a tough time holding on to some seats in other places. And so we will find out on those things. But, uh, of course, in addition to 2022, there's 2024 when there's a presidential race and Three Martini Lunch brought to you in part today by the Presidential Election Project. Imagine a scenario in 2024 that is similar to 2020 with a lot of questions about irregularities in votes and even debates and recounts of votes in key states. Except this time, it won't be Mike Pence, but it could be Vice President Kamala Harris, who will be urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act just isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this changed. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now and sign up to get updates. Learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. The project urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get those updates so that by 2024, there's no question that Vice President Harris won't have the power to overturn those results. One more time, presidentialelectionproject.com. The evidence is clear. More guns, less crime. So why is there a relentless push for more gun control? On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, I talk with Dr. John Lott of the Crime Prevention Research Center about why mass shootings occur and how telling the truth about guns got him fired and how the media are only interested in one side of this debate. Join us. Follow The Bill Walton Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And yesterday was... Uh, 
a crazy day in front of the January 6th commission. You had a lot of people saying everything has changed now. Uh, criminal prosecution uh, could be very much in the, in the future for President Trump following the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, who was an aide uh, on January 6th at that time to uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Uh, and she had uh, a number of things to say, but the one that got the most attention was the story she heard from um, a Secret Service agent when they got back to the White House following uh, the rally that Trump spoke at before the crowd headed on down to the Capitol. And so, uh, according to Hutchinson's story, Trump had assumed they were going to the Capitol and the Secret Service told him, no, we don't have the assets in place. Uh, we, we, it's, it's not secure. We can't do that. Uh, Trump became very, very upset uh, and it escalated to this point, Jim. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And so the two people she mentioned there, Engel and Orinado, uh, are now apparently on the record, Jim. Uh, first, it came in a tweet from Peter Alexander of NBC News yesterday saying both were prepared to testify under oath to the committee that that did not happen. Uh, and now the U.S. Secret Service has formally said they are prepared to testify under oath that that did not happen. So uh, obviously she's wasn't there when it happened, and now she's uh, recounting what she claims she was told by the two people who are now prepared to rebut this. So uh, what seemed to be, and, you know, the, the people that hate Trump, uh, it's always, you know, the latest testimony is a smoking gun. Uh, anybody who's read your jolt today knows you're not Trump's biggest fan. But uh, wh why does this keep happening where people say this stuff and then they have to walk it back? Yeah, we could easily classify this as a crazy martini, but I think it is bad for the entire country, and here's why. Any scenario, uh, it kind of comes out with some really very bad outcomes or bad results. The first is if uh, Hutchinson is in fact telling the truth and that you know Trump was that unhinged and he was that out of his mind uh, and lunged towards the uh, the driver, that you know that's the, a good God. You know how how could that we re how could the president reach that kind of point? When I first heard that yesterday afternoon, like that just if that doesn't it's like a giant flashing neon sign for the 25th Amendment. But then as you start thinking about it, like how could an anecdote like that remain secret for a year and a half? Um, and then all of a sudden there's these subsequent reporting from uh, Peter Alexander of NBC News, Yashar Ali of New York Magazine, basically saying the Secret Service agents say, look, they're prepared to testify on a road. This didn't happen. Uh, Trump never lunged for the steering wheel. But I heard a whole bunch of people saying you can't do that in the beast. And my understanding is that that is correct. But Trump also has a presidential SUV, and that may not have that same kind of, of barrier there. But any of these scenarios in which Trump didn't do this, and Hutchinson is saying under oath that this occurred, are bad. And possibility one is that Hutchinson is some like unhinged, uh, uh, is making this up entirely, and, and that she's you know decided to make up this story to make Trump look worse than he is. Or the other one, which I think is probably the most likely one, is that she genuinely heard it. She's repeating the story. She is truthfully repeating the story she heard, but that the story itself is not accurate and that it is some sort of exaggeration of an angry exchange Trump had with a Secret Service agent or, you know, I don't find it very hard to believe that Trump wanted to go to Capitol Hill after the rally. That, that general sense is true. But there are details in this story that don't really add up. And I think this 
if it shakes out this way, I think the January 6th commission has had a very serious blow to its credibility. I think anybody who was, you know, generally most Trump fans are not paying attention to the January 6th hearing and saying, oh, this is all nonsense. This is all BS. But for that small percentage that might be tuning in, or let's say Trump voting Republicans who don't think of themselves as being uh, MAGA hat wearing, you know, Trump diehards, maybe they were hearing this and saying, wow, this, this really is an ugly portrait of Trump. But then you get this detail wrong, and this is a you know the eye popping. Oh my goodness, how could you know how how could this be kept secret? This is you know the president losing his mind. Um, this is the sort of thing. Where if that proves false, then everybody's gonna say, ah, this is another partisan exercise. This is just trying to drive up Democratic turnout for midterms, and people will be skeptical. And the January sixth committee will have nobody to blame but themselves. Lots of folks had said, oh come on, if she's testifying to this, they must have already checked with the Secret Service agents, but they didn't or at least and it's just mind-boggling that you'd allow that you it's just like it's amateur hour it's it's an unbelievable unforced error um look i think this is overall going to be a very negative portrait of the president i think most of it is truthful i think trump really was you know more or less bonkers with this obsessive belief that he had actually won and it was you know i'm sure Sidney powell was telling him about you know venezuelan hackers and bamboo in the paper in the arizona ballots and all kinds of nonsense like that however as I lay out in today's morning, Joel. Today's morning, Joel, is basically a really wonderful exercise in irking every single person on every side of the spectrum. That's what I specialize in, Greg. Um, <laughs> is this idea? I pointed out that it's for all of the, uh, in my mind, incontrovertible evidence that Trump has um, just definitive flaws in, that make him, uh, you know, no longer qualified for office if he ever was, and the degree to which we see these types of anecdotes and descriptions coming from, you know, not crazy lefties, but from James Mattis and Betsy DeVos and John Bolton and uh, William Barr. I mean, pe people who worked for Trump, worked with Trump closely, were on his team, were ideologically aligned with him. And if all of them keep coming back and saying, I thought I could work with this guy, but he's an absolute maniac, he's out of control. Like at some point, you got to stop believing all these people are making it up. At some point, Occam's razor has to kick in here. But my attitude towards all this is for all these people who have been contending that the president led an insurrection, the president interfered with the uh, actions of the legislative branch, the president turned against his own government. I have a really hard time believing Trump did all that, but he didn't break any laws in the process. So, you know, it's great that the January 6th commission is you know trying to fill in the blanks and add more detail. Look, we all watched January 6th happen on our television screens. We know what happened. We know the general gist. The real question is, did Trump commit a crime in any of that? And if he did commit a crime, well, then go and indict him, Merrick Garland. Get it over with. Get it done with. It's been a year and a half. What are you waiting for? There's a rumor around that Trump's going to announce he's running for president on July 4th. If Trump decides he's running for president and then the attorney general appointed by Joe Biden decides to indict him on criminal charges, it's going to look like another part of partisan political exercise. It was always look, Trump fans are always going to say this. But it looks worse if you do this shortly after Trump announces he's running for office. Uh, is it ludicrously early for Trump to announce he's running for president? Yes. But the thing is, I'm just left wondering what the Department of Justice was doing for the past year and a half if it hasn't happened here. And again, I don't know if we needed congressional hearings. I think we needed to, you know, the U.S. federal law enforcement to decide, did the president commit a crime? And if he did, make that you know, persuade a grand jury. And if you can persuade a grand jury, indict him on charges, go get him convicted in a jury.
But apparently uh, that, you know, either that's not happening yet or God knows if it's ever going to happen. So we end up in the, you know, the, the Trump side, as much as I disagree with the president, does have a legitimate gripe that they're undergoing something that feels like a trial and looks like a cycle, uh, a trial, but isn't really a trial because there is no cross-examination and there is no, it's much more, much more similar to a grand jury uh, process. There is no defense attorney present and that sort of thing. So uh, just utterly infuriating all around. Um, I think it's going to leave everybody on, you know, on, it's not going to satisfy anyone. And I think the January 6th committee may have done themselves enormous uh, self-inflicted damage yesterday. Jim, I referred to it as a grand jury when Andy McCarthy was in for you a couple of weeks ago. And he said it's not even that because because the grand jurors can actually ask questions. They can cross-examine uh, potential witnesses and so forth. So it's not even uh, that strength. Although McCarthy uh, also thought yesterday was devastating, I think, in his words, uh, to Trump. So uh, it'd be very curious to see now if they actually call these guys. They're willing to testify, but uh, you know they're they're very carefully trying to lay out their case. Uh, so will they actually bring in witnesses that go against the case they've already tried to build? I'm I'm not sure that they will. So that that that's going to reflect on the committee as well. But uh, if if the Department of Justice looks at all this and either decides ah you know there's just not enough proof here or well we just think it would be too damaging to the country to indict a former president. I mean, you know, I could, by the way, just insert Charles Logan joke here. Um, <laughs> what was the point of all this then? What, what was the point if, you know, well, here's all the terrible things Trump did, but it wasn't a crime, nothing we can do. Good luck, America. You know, like my, the, the, I don't really get this idea that Trump is the most you know, uh, devastating threat to American democracy in our lifetimes. But there's nothing we can do to indict him for a crime. <laughs> it's this very weird uh, selective powerlessness of the the federal government in this process that I think doesn't quite add up, and I think indicates that some of this is a uh, there's there's a little bit more partisan politics in this than than folks want to admit. A couple of quick thoughts here, Jim. First of all, I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking to themselves. As long as we're talking about the 25th Amendment being invoked, what about the current president? Although we have certainly talked about that on a number of occasions. Uh, but also, let's be fair here, Jim. Uh, Charles Logan was part of a conspiracy, and unfortunately a successful conspiracy, to murder the former president of the United States. So <laughs> that was that's a slightly different... Uh, that's pretty uh, bad. Yeah, <laughs> you know, even Trump would say, okay, that's too much. <laughs> Poor David Palmer. Charles Logan was an amateur. David Palmer is still, I think, the best president we've had this century. I, I will stand on that. I think he was excellent. <laughs> uh, you know, ran into some ethical situations that forced him to not seek a second term. But uh, all in all, he faced some ridiculously serious crises during his time as president. And uh, for the most part, I think acquitted himself very well. Greg, during the entire Palmer presidency, I just felt like we're in good hands. <laughs> all states, when you think about it. Yeah. So far, he is the only president to be 25th Amendment, though. That happened in uh, season two. Okay. Honest to goodness, talking with Mrs. Campaigns about last night, I I invoked 24. (laughs) Because she raised the question, well, if Trump was a maniac behind the scenes, this is before we heard the report that the Secret Service agents were not backing up this claim of Trump trying to grab the wheel. Uh, And I'm I'm ranting and raving and saying, why, you know, this is the biggest, clearest 25th Amendment case I've ever seen. Why, if this is the case, why didn't anybody ever come out and say, yeah, the president's trying to grab the the steering wheel. He's he's nuts. Um, And Mrs. Campaign Spot said, well, why didn't Mike Pence say that? And I said, well, really, the one person in the entire government who I don't want leading an effort to invoke the 25th Amendment 
is the vice president, because that just looks too self-serving. I don't like the idea that the argument that the president has gone nuts is coming from the vice president. And she's like, why do you think that? And I thought for a moment, I said, I can answer this question with one number, 24. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the vice president was in on that, although the chief of staff, uh, the supposedly yeah, royal yeah. Mike Novick, anyway, if you haven't seen 24, it feels like on 24, like every 10 minutes, the vice president was leading a coup against that. It's, it's kind of like, like in this alternate universe, do we never get rid of the second place finisher becomes the vice president rule that we had in those first couple elections in America? Because it's kind of like, you know, as your vice president, I pledge to lead a treasonous effort to replace the man next to me. It seems like that was the sort of thing they would do in every one of these uh, opening speeches. Season two. Hey, listen, we, we, we got very jolly and far afield, didn't we, Greg? We did. Season two, season four, uh, season five, season six, and after that, I'm not even sure. But uh, yeah, it happened uh, It happened more often than, than uh, re- realism would uh, suggest. But uh, if you haven't seen 24, a fantastic TV show. Uh, nonetheless, on to our wonderful sponsor for the day also, my pillow. Obviously, the pillows are great, the sheets are great, the towels are great, but right now, the focus is on the massive blowout sale on all my slippers. You can save $90, regularly $139.98, blowout price $49.98 with the promo code MARTINI. It took two years to develop their exclusive four-tier cushioning system. This includes some MyPillow patented fill, the Comfort Memory Foam, which helps prevent fatigue, the patented Impact Gel, and the indoor-outdoor sole that you can wear in or out all day long, wherever you like. These slippers are made with quality leather suede. They're available in a variety of styles, colors, and sizes. They're machine washable, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. So go to MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 for the My Slippers at only $49.95. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the buy one, get one extravaganza on bed sheets, MyPillows, and more. Visit MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 today for the most comfortable slippers you'll ever own and get Mike's book free. MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. I think season six, Jim, was the uh, the one where the intrigue was the highest. Remember Powers Booth just brooding in the bunker pretty much all the time for how he's going to replace Wayne Palmer? Yeah, not a great season, but uh, the uh, the intrigue. Look, that guy's seen how bad a crisis can get. He lived through Red Dawn. <laughs> All right, let's uh, move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And yesterday, while a lot of people were focused on what Cassidy Hutchinson was saying up on Capitol Hill, it was sentencing day for Jelaine Maxwell. She was essentially the madam for uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, She was uh, among those who recruited and facilitated uh, rendezvous between high-profile clients who apparently will never uh, be revealed here uh, and a lot of underage girls. So um, uh, Jelaine Maxwell going to prison for 20 years. Epstein, of course, died in his prison cell. Plenty of controversy over that and non-working cameras and so forth. But ultimately, Jim, uh, a lot of people frustrated that uh, other criminals here, namely people who paid to have sex with underage girls, are apparently going to skate. And oddly enough, the only one who's going to pay any repercussions, it seems, is Prince Andrew, who's been stripped of his royal duties, which, you know, rightly so. It's probably about the bare minimum that should happen to him. But uh, everybody else, apparently, uh, prosecutors, 
Maxwell herself, nobody has any interest whatsoever in making these people pay any consequences. Yeah, take that, Prince Andrew. <laughs> no longer a royal. You sit in the corner and you think about that. And then go back to living in your palace, I guess. Because it's, like, it's not like he's getting tossed out or anything. No. Um, look, we before we go any further, it is you know, this is a this is a horrible, dark, um, unnerving uh just just lives leaves you with the willies you know uh, as bad a scandal as they get and far reaching so i don't think this is something to make light of but with that said almost everybody saw the news of the sentencing yesterday and had pretty much the same response yes she was sentenced to 20 years and or a mysterious death in, in jail um, that basically, oh, this, uh, this, this, you know, this, this is she's going to die mysteriously, just like uh, Epstein did. We don't know, but it was really odd. As you, you know, so as soon as Epstein was was arrested, first of all, remember there were two arrests. He was arrested, then they, you know, got a deal, and he went back to it. And then there was a second uh, prosecution of him, and people wondered why he seemed to get this particularly, you know, uh, suspiciously generous deal from the prosecutors down in Florida. He finally is behind bars. Then he hangs himself, but he hangs himself under circumstances where the, the camera wasn't working, the guards weren't watching him, and there was just one thing. Also, didn't they find him with a, a Saudi passport in his possession, Greg? If I'm, am I remembering correctly? I don't remember that detail, but who knows? Right. So <laughs> it was this giant pile. Then he had the whole island, and obviously the claims that you know Bill he had been buddies with just about every celebrity you can possibly think of. Bill Clinton was on his you know, like. The moment your air, your private jet is nicknamed the Lolita Express, that should really be a giant flashing, get the drudge siren going, you know, um, line of suspicion for prosecutors and investigators. Uh, you know, it's one of those things like, you know, people said, why did, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, the U.S. government believe that uh, Saddam Hussein's, you know, one of her one of his top scientists nicknamed Dr. Germ. Why did they think she was working on biological weapons? And I think the first one was that she was called Dr. Germ. <laughs> that'd be your first, that'd be your first clue. That first thing that would make you suspicious. If you're calling your plane the Lolita Express, that should really make you know, the eyebrows raise and make people say, okay, what's really going on here? What is interesting is one, how horrible the details are, how mysterious the details are, because the camera just happened to not work at just the right time and things like that. And then on top of that, how the story just kind of disappears from the news cycle. Now, look, I realize we have a constantly you know, changing news cycle. Ukraine isn't a big deal anymore. Um, you know, every, every things that seemed like a really huge deal on any given day. Look, we're, we're going to forget about Roe v. Wade within like another week or two. It'll be overtaken by either, you know, this particular January 6th commission stuff, or there'll be another mass shooting. Something will happen and people forget about things. And that works very conveniently for people who are under a cloud of suspicion like everybody in Epstein's little black book. So uh, hopefully someday we'll get some answers on this, Greg. But it certainly doesn't seem that way. And, uh, you know, I hope people are watching Maxwell very closely because, you know, the the, the past history suggests, um, you know, you don't wish anyone to die under mysterious circumstances, though it's kind of hard to feel much sympathy for her. But the past history makes you wonder if there's some sort of other factors at work here making you... Uh, uh, averting the true uh, true justice instead of uh, uh, helping facilitate it. Yeah, I, I don't know what's being gained by protecting these people at this point, but 
Apparently, that's what's going to happen. Disgusting. Disgusting, to say the least. So, Jim, on that note, uh, we've made it through more than half the week. So uh, enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thank you very much also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep those coming. Also, uh, remember to get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us on Thursday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. I think it's important to remember that such Stalinist show trials are partially about persecuting political opponents and putting them in prison, but they're also about covering up crimes or covering up real stories. And so I have found it really interesting how the committee is engaged in a cover-up of what happened in the in the 2020 election. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.